Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be together. My name is Katie Wilson, and I'm a ministry coordinator here at Trinity. And we're going to get to do the thing that we do every week. We're going to read from the Bible, we're going to pray, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us. So if you have Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy. We've been in this letter for the last couple of weeks. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 14 and go through chapter 4, verse 5. So starting in 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and carry out your ministry fully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come into this space. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us through the words of our brother Paul, through the words of this letter that was written so long ago, would, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your voice? Jesus, would we see you this morning more clearly? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've been in this letter the last couple weeks, and this letter is thought to be Paul's like final swan song letter to Timothy. Of course, our brother Paul is the apostle for the Gentiles. He's the one to go out and spread the good news. And Paul, guys, he's gone through the ringer in his life. Like he's been in suffer, he's suffered, he's been in prison, like beaten all the time. And he's also seen the Lord do incredible things. And we get this last letter as kind of Timothy's like final words that he's wanting to share, or Paul's final words that he's wanting to share with Timothy. And we hear in this that Timothy, that Paul loves Timothy. He calls him often his beloved child. And one of the things that Chris has been talking about the last couple of weeks is how in the letter of 2 Timothy, we see this call to be a spiritual family, this call that we can't do life alone, we can't do our faith alone. And if you know me as much as I want to do things on my own, I don't want help, I need it. We need it. We need it together. And that's how Paul starts this letter, as he tells Timothy, 
Continue in the things you have learned and remember whom you've learned it from. And so Paul had talked about earlier about Timothy's mother and grandmother. He's like, remember them. And I think Paul too is like, and remember me. I, Paul, also helped you. Make sure not to forget that. And it's this week helped me think about who are the people in my life who have shaped me? Who are the people who have formed me, who have taught me about Jesus? Because those people matter in our lives. I think sometimes we can keep going and move on and forget that. And so my encouragement is to think about that. Who are the people who have formed you? And are there people in your wake that you're forming? And that's how Paul begins this letter is your spiritual family should form you. And then Paul transitions and he talks about how scripture, the sacred writings, should also form Timothy. Should form Timothy and form his community. And when Paul's writing this letter and he talks about the holy scriptures, he's talking, of course, about the Old Testament. I don't think Paul was writing this and was like, all scripture, this letter is inspired by God and useful for all these things. He was referring to the Jewish scriptures. But what we know is that our church mothers and fathers gathered up all these letters, the gospels, what we now call the New Testament, and also said, this is scripture. This is the word of God. And so I think we can hear from Paul these words to remember that the sacred writings, remember that this Bible should form us, should shape us. And I'm going to be honest, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was a little apprehensive. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go talk about the Bible. And what I know to be true is that the Bible, for many of us, has been used as a weapon. That the Bible has been used to uphold power, to hurt people. I have a friend who just this last week told me, that she remembered a sermon from 20 years ago that tormented her. The sermon, that Bible, was used to hold her under power and to hurt her. And we also know the Bible was used to justify slavery, to oppress women, to keep outsiders on the outside. And in a room this size, my guess is some of you have been hurt by the Bible. And even if the Bible hasn't been maybe used as like a weapon per se, I know that all of us have had this instance where we're going through a really hard time and some really well-meaning person shares a Bible verse with us. And it, it doesn't actually comfort or encourage. It honestly makes it worse, right? Where you're like, I now feel guilty that I'm suffering and that I don't have enough faith. It like dismisses our pain and it dismisses what we're going through. And so I, I think that so much the Bible can be used as a weapon. It can be used to dismiss. And I just think we need to name that and say at the same time that's not all it is. That's not all the Bible is. But what I also know to be true is that humans were like people that swing the pendulum, right? Where we're like all the way over here and then we swing all the way. So it's like if the Bible has been used to hurt people or to oppress we got to swing the whole other way and just throw it out. If truth, what we call absolute truth, has been used to hurt, then let's throw it out. No truth. Paul writes in chapter 4 these words that I, I think he could have written literally today. He says, 
For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. I mean, how relevant is that, right? Like, how easy is it for us to, I don't really like what that person's saying, and I can find a million people who say exactly what I want to hear. I can listen to podcasts, I can read books, I can hear sermons that say, Katie, it's about your truth. It's about you. Don't worry about other people. And if you have your truth and I have my truth, as long as you don't think your truth is more important than my truth, then we're good, right? This idea of truth can just be so relativized. And so, as people, we can either be like, Bible's oppressive, there is no truth, but there has to be something in between, right? There has to be a posture where we can name harm and hold that it could still be good. And I, I believe that that's what Paul invites us to in this passage. I uh, was joking with a friend before this that Chris usually gives sermon notes and is like, I give these for tracks to run on. I was like, I don't have sermon notes, so we don't have a lot of tracks to run on, but I believe in us that we'll stick together. And I want us to lean into this one verse in particular, and that's verse 16. It's, and if, this is probably the most famous verse of the letter. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now that idea, that word inspired by God can be a little bit loaded, can have like some strong feelings around it. But what I love is that that word inspired by God literally means God breathed. A lot of, a lot of translations will even say that. They'll say God breathed. And as I've been sitting with this text all week, that, I can't get that part out of my head. Like, what does it mean for the Bible to be God breathed? And how does that how does that then impact the way I read it? Because I think it does. I think it does matter. I think it does impact. And so what I want us to do today is we're going to kind of zoom out. We're going to take, we have this letter in the New Testament. We're going to zoom out and talk about the Bible. Big story Bible. Because I, if we believe the Bible matters, we have to know what it is, Right? And what the Bible is, is it's these 66 books. Some of them are poetry, some of them is narrative, some of it is law. A lot of it, or some of it, is weird. Some of it's a little boring. We can say that, right? And a lot of it is really exciting and amazing. But rather than like 66 completely separate books, it's this one story that I think whether you've read the Bible every day for the last 40 years, or you've never picked it up, to know the story matters, to be reminded of the story matters. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the story, because also it's a good story, right? And what I, one of the ways I think we can read this story is that it is a story that talks about a God who breathes life. It's a story about a God who breathes life. When I first read that verse, all scripture is God-breathed, I immediately thought of the Garden of Eden, the very, very, very beginning of our story, Genesis 1 and 2. We see that it talks about in the beginning there's this chaotic darkness, 
and the Spirit of God hovers over it. And that word spirit is the same word for breath, it's the same word for wind. And the breath of God, the Spirit of God is hovering over the darkness. And from that, life starts to come, order comes, and then we see a little bit later that God is forming humanity out of the dust. And then it says he breathes life out of their nostrils into him. And until then, humanity wasn't living. It was just a dusty body until God breathed life on him. And that life that he breathed was good. That first two chapters, we get a good creation. We see a good God. We see a good life. And unfortunately, pretty quickly, things go awry, right? As humanity, we rebel against God. We decide we trust ourselves more than him. And when that happens, sin and death enter the story. Breath that's been given can now be taken. Breath that was meant for life can now end. Death enters the story. But yet, even though death enters the story, God doesn't give up. He's not done with this story. He actually decides to choose a family, the family of Abraham, and say, through you, through your family, I'm going to make a nation, the nation of Israel, and through that nation, I will bless the world. I will breathe life over all of the world. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, I mean, they could not get their act together. Like, yes, God, we want to follow you. We believe in you. And then things get hard, and they're like, just kidding. I think we're out. But then God is faithful again, and they're like, yes, Lord, we still want to follow you. And then things get hard again, and they're like, maybe not. But time and time again, you see the story of Israel as God continuing to be faithful, continuing to want to make a way, continuing to want to breathe life. And we get to this one point in the Old Testament where this nation of Israel has gone into exile. A nation has taken over them and brought them out of the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, and all hope seems to be lost. Is this the time God finally gave up on humanity? finally left us to our own devices. And what God does is he comes to the prophet Ezekiel and he gives Ezekiel, this prophet, who hears from the Lord and then shares with the people a vision. And he gives him this vision of a valley of dry bones, which is kind of gross. Dry, brittle bones. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. So that's what Ezekiel does. He prophesies to these bones, and the, the text tells us that they start to like rattle. They start to like form bodies and skin and muscles, but they're not alive yet. It's not until Ezekiel then prophesies to the breath to breathe into these bones dry bones to this new flesh, that they, they become alive. This nation becomes alive, which gives us hope that God's not done breathing life yet. That even when the hope was lost, he's still moving the story forward. He's still desiring to breathe life. That's a promise that we see in Ezekiel. And then when we fast forward and we get to Jesus, 
Israel's Messiah, God's son. I was picturing this week what it would have been like to hear Jesus' first cry in the manger. That first breath of God in human flesh. When I was at the 9 a.m., a baby literally cried when I said that. So I was pausing, you know, waiting for the baby. Um, but could you imagine the breath of God crying for the first time? And then we read about Jesus and the way that he lives his life, the ways that he teaches people, he heals, he cares for people. And he does it to the people that you're not supposed to, to the outsiders and the sinners, and he's bringing forth new life, but people don't like it, so they decide to kill him. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the ultimate sign of God's love, Mark tells us that he cries out and he breathes his last. The God who brought life, brought breath to the story is the one who breathes his last. And I know we know how the story keeps going, but imagine that. Imagine seeing the one you thought was going to rescue the world take his last breath. Our last breath he took. And then three days later, I was imagining what it would have been like to picture, picture our head together. Jesus laying down his cold, lifeless body in the tomb. It's the third day, and all of a sudden, the first breath, the first breath of new life. And in that one breath that Jesus took, everything changed. Everything changed. It no longer meant that death that took the last breath didn't have the last breath, that life has the last breath. And it began this inauguration of a new creation that one day where our story is heading is towards life everlasting because of that one breath that he took. And then we see Jesus, he appears to his disciples and they're kind of spooked because he just rose from the dead, right? And he, he tells them, he's like, peace be with you. And then what does he do? Do you remember in John? He breathes on them and he says, go with my Holy Spirit that new life breath he breathes on his disciples, and then they're the people that go to spread the good news, to be the church, to welcome people into a community where there's life, where we love one another, where you look out for one another and look outwards, inviting people to experience life. I don't think it's coincidence that Paul said the scripture is God-breathed. Because what we see is a God who breathes life. And I believe that the God who breathes life into humanity, who breathes life into those dry bones, who breathes life into Jesus and the disciples, desires to do the same for us. Wants to breathe life into my life and in yours. And the crazy, mysterious thing is that one of the ways that God breathes life is through this. In a really mysterious way, we get to encounter Jesus 
we get to experience the breath of God through this book, if it's just words, it doesn't matter. If it's just a story, it's a good story, but it doesn't matter. Unless it's breathed by God. This story is our story. It's my story. It's your story. We get the promise of the end, but we're still in the middle of it. We're not at the new creation yet. We're still in the middle of it. It's our story. Okay, we zoomed out. We're going to zoom back in really quick. So Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are God-breathed. They're useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And often I read that verse and immediately, for some reason, think outward. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bible is useful for teaching you, reproof you, correcting you, and training you. And I was reminded this week of Jesus telling, like, you got to take the plank out of your own eye before the speck in your, in your neighbor, right? That the Bible is meant for us to be taught, for us to be trained, for me to be trained and rebuked. And some of that language feels harsh at times, but the, the disclaimer is to read this book and to try to base our lives off this book isn't always going to be warm and fuzzy. Because this book reveals to me sometimes the places where I'm not living into God's best. And that can like bump up against me. But that's still kind. That's still good. That's still desiring more life. And I believe that Paul sees this, this scripture as one that helps us learn more and more about who Jesus is. And how Paul ends this passage is he talks about evangelism, which we don't have time to fully get into. But I know if the word the Bible is triggering, the word evangelism for sure is. So before you go awry to like all the ways that evangelism has been done poorly, just want us to think quickly that evangelism means to spread the good news. And what I believe is that all of our efforts of evangelism are for naught if we don't actually believe it's good news. If we don't believe that this story is the story, is the good news, then it doesn't really matter. Because to Evangelism is actually an invitation, an invitation to make your story a part of this story. And I'm only going to invite you if I think it's good. I'm only going to invite you if I think this is the good news. Because what I need and what you need and what our city of Atlanta needs and the world needs is the breath of God. I need the Spirit of God to remind me who Jesus is day in and day out. I need the breath of God to remind me that there is hope. I need the breath of God to remind me that death doesn't get the last breath. I need that. Our church needs that. Our church needs the breath of God to be the kinds of people we are created to be to care for one another. Our church needs the breath of God to love our city to breathe life over the city that we love. That's what we need. And one of the ways that we get it really mysteriously is through the Bible. 
And I love this book. And I also know that it's been used for ill will. But I, I like, want to be able to hold both of those. And I think that if we approach this book as a manual of how to do the right thing or how not to do the wrong thing, we're missing it. I think we're missing the invitation to see who Jesus is. As I was praying over and over again this week, I kept hearing the voice of Jesus say, tell them my story. Tell the people that this is the story that they're invited to. Tell the people that I want them to know me. That's my encouragement. Is what would it look like to get to know Jesus? To read, maybe it's even read the Gospel of John, a chapter a day. Not to see how can I apply these principles to my life, how can I like consume enough information, but just to be curious about who is Jesus? Who is the one that this story is all about? What is he like? What's it like when he heals people? What's it like when he talks? I think we can be curious about Jesus. And when, and when we do, my hope is that then we can talk to each other about it. Like, like we said, we're not supposed to do this alone. Maybe that's talking to your neighborhood group about who do you see Jesus? Or your friends or your kids, your families. If you don't have anybody, email me. I'd love to talk about Jesus with you because I think it matters. And to close, each time I read the Bible, each time that we read it around here at Trinity, we just begin with a simple prayer, come Holy Spirit. And I encourage you to pray that same prayer. And even this week I was praying, God, breathe on me. I need the breath of God. We're going to spend a few minutes in reflection. I didn't have notes, but I have a reflection question. And we're just going to spend a few minutes thinking about this. Where in your life do you need to experience the breath of God? And then begin to be curious about Jesus. Marty will come up for communion. Thank you.